Well, here we are in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus is going to do something surprising again. In fact, something so surprising that it frightened someone who knew him fairly well. The reason for that is Jesus in one moment with one decision kind of readjusted Peter's mental map. See, we don't, we're not consciously aware of it, but we walk through life creating mental maps of what should happen and what comes next. It doesn't take much to unsettle those mental maps. At my house, for instance, every once in a while, I'm not sure what goes on in our neighborhood, but there are occasionally large, loud noises in our neighborhood. Uh, this last one a few weeks ago, the ho whole house shook momentarily. The slider, the glass slider in the back shook in its frame. And my wife always says the same thing. Can you anticipate what she might say? Better go check that out. It's reasonable, chivalrous, and I say, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> I've learned now through painful experience, if she says, better go check that out, if I'm not moving pretty quickly, she, with every good reason to do so, sighs and says, never mind, I'll do it, okay, which is a, a shameful experience for a man. So, now I'm trying to jump up and get her to sit back down and... The last time I, I went, frankly, just out of manly obligation, and obviously everything was fine because here I am telling you about it, right? But about 8 o'clock at night, we've got this mental map we all do of what the neighborhood sounds like. And if you hear a scratch in the kitchen or a bang against a window, it doesn't take much to get you up and moving and looking around. That experience of expecting reality as you've experienced it so many times before and then suddenly having new information that unsettles you, that is such a common thing that psychologists have actually given it a name. People who focus on education and human development call that cognitive dissonance. Okay, you can go home this week and impress somebody. Uh, <laughs> impress somebody. Something unexpected happens at work, you say, I'm, I'm experiencing a little cognitive dissonance. How about you? Okay? And they'll be impressed. I promise they'll be impressed. Or annoyed. That's usually my experience when I try those phrases out. All that means is you've had new cognitive input, you've had new intellectual input, and it is unsettled thing, hence the dissonance. That's exactly what happens in Luke chapter 5 on an ordinary fishing day for Peter and his partners. Will you look there with me, Luke chapter 5? The ministry of Jesus has been going on for over a year. It is thriving. In fact, on this occasion, there was no place to sit. It wasn't like today here at Cross Point with so many men away on retreat. They had the opposite problem. Luke 5, verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee, just another name for it. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Ministry is going so well that Jesus is being pushed into the water. The crowd has grown so large that without meaning to, they're just about to run him into the lake. 
And nobody in a crowd intends to do that. Just more and more people come. They all step forward. They all lean to hear a little bit better. And that pushes the row in front of them, which pushes the row in front of them. And it's getting uncomfortable. Now, do you see the crowd's motive? Why are they there? They are there to hear the Word of God. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. This isn't necessarily a self-interested crowd. They're there with good reasons. They are there to hear the Word of God. And Jesus looks, and there's two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, and that signals that they're done for the day. This is a commercial fishing spot in the Galilee. This is, if you will, the nation's breadbasket. This is where a great deal of farming and fishing is going to happen to feed all of Israel. And fishermen washing their nets in the day signals that these are hardworking commercial fishermen who are done for the day. They're washing their nets. They're looking for tears to make repairs, and they're going to store their nets and secure their boats because the workday is over. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, which is Peter's actual name. Peter is the nickname Jesus gave him. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sought down and taught the people from the boat. To this day, you can go to Galilee, and you'll see that the coastline is kind of in a zigzag pattern. It's jagged. There's all these little natural inlets. And what it does is it creates a little natural amphitheater. The shore kind of slopes down toward the water. And to this day, if you can get in a boat and push off a little bit in the right spot, you can speak from the boat and actually be heard more clearly from the boat projecting your voice over the water than you could if you stood on land. And that's what Jesus does. This is Jesus being creative and adaptive. The crowd is so big that people in the back aren't going, to be hear, aren't going to be able to hear him. He's getting pushed into the water. So he says to Peter, grab your boat. I know you're done. Grab your boat. Let's go out a little bit. And then he adopts the customary position of someone in the first century who's opening up the Hebrew Scriptures. He sits down in a humble posture to teach what God had to say. And that's what happens on Galilee. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep. Go out into deep water, in other words, and let your, down your nets for a catch. Now, folks, we don't know much about fishing in the first century on the Galilee, so let me tell you, this is terrible advice. The reason the fishermen are on the shore washing their nets is they're done. The way fishing works in this part of the world is the fishermen would fish at night. They, would go, they were familiar with the way the fish moved around the Sea of Galilee. The fish at night would go into the shallows. So the fishermen would go out, not too deep, let these big nets down, and haul them up. Jesus is telling Peter to do exactly the wrong thing. Because remember, Peter is a commercial fisherman, so successful, as you're going to see. He has partners, and he actually owns a boat. He's got this little ancient boat. They've found one. It's in Israel, a first-century boat, very similar, we're quite sure, of the kind that Peter might have used. It's about 25 feet long. Eight, ten people would have been a real crowd. And just remember that as you keep reading through the Gospels. And now, Jesus is giving fishing instructions. Only one problem. What trade was it that Jesus practiced? He's a carpenter. What's Peter again? 
not just a hobbyist, he's a commercial fisherman. This has been the family business for generations. And he's telling him to do exactly the wrong thing. And Peter says so. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took how much? Nothing. Well, if you've ever worked in the kind of business where day-to-day sales or day-to-day production determined your living, you might anticipate how these guys are feeling. If you've ever had to meet a payroll or had to pay a mortgage based on what you could get done day-to-day, Peter's not feeling great. If he's a responsible commercial fisherman, and he must have been because he had his own boat and he even had some partners, he's looking forward saying, that was terrible. We fished all night. We caught nothing. If this continues, we're really going to be in trouble. And sometimes when you're you're in a position where you're clearly outmatched by someone else, maybe this is just me and my own personal insecurities, but if I'm in the presence of someone who's just clearly a far better person than I am, if there's one area of my life where I've got the edge, I try to hang on to that one thing, right? I speak Spanish. Big deal. You speak Spanish. Well, I'm hanging on to that because I speak Spanish and you don't. I'll hang on to that one thing. That might be a little bit of what's going on here. But Peter has seen Jesus operate before. Remember what Luke has already told us. Peter has been in the synagogue at Capernaum when Jesus was casting out demons and healing the diseased. He went home to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law so miraculously that a woman with a raging fever that's in the previous chapter gets up and immediately starts serving lunch. But this is a whole new environment. So Peter says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but look at the wisdom, but at your word I will let down the nets. You ever felt like Jesus is telling you to do something that doesn't make much sense? Have you ever, maybe consciously or with your choices, with your actions that followed, kind of told them that you thought you had a better angle on this particular situation? We do this all the time. Peter has seen Jesus operate and have complete mastery over every place he has ever seen Jesus work. But in Luke's telling, this is new. He's in Peter's world. This isn't the carpenter's shop. This is the Sea of Galilee where likely for generations Peter and his family has fished these waters. One night they've done everything a professional fisherman knows to do to feed his family, and it was all for absolutely nothing. But he's wise and humble enough to say, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, only then, only when they took Jesus at his word, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to, what? This is the catch of a lifetime. St. Jesus has moved them from one problem into an entirely different and much better problem. One night of hard work using all of their professional expertise for absolutely nothing. A day wasted, a day closer to hunger for their families. Now, 
These men who were so accustomed, that's what they did all night. They're ready to go home, throw the nets down in deep water where the fish cannot possibly be expected to be in the daytime, especially after a crowd of thousands has been jostling around. You ever take somebody fishing? Is talking around the fish good for fishing or bad for fishing? It's terrible, right? And people who are serious about about fishing have to tell the newbie, would you please shut up? (laughs) Quiet. We'll talk in the truck. It's just a completely absurd situation. They're doing it all wrong, and suddenly these hard, sinewy, sunburned men are straining because the net is breaking in their hands. It feels like their shoulders are going to be torn from their sockets. And they yell to the other boat, we need help. And every hand on deck starts helping with the nets, and it's still not enough. The boats are beginning to sink, and I'm sure they're yelling to each other, get on the high side, we're taking on water over here, and they're struggling tremendously to take in this great catch. Now, don't read ahead in the story. This is extreme cognitive dissonance. This is having the mental math not adjusted, but ripped from your mind and torn up. How would you react if you were in Peter's situation? What would that make you think? What would that make you feel? Look what it did to Peter. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. It frightened him. At a point, he was most needed to be working, to be hauling everything in. He chose instead, overcome by what he had experienced, so frightened by what Jesus had just done in Peter's own environment where Peter had mastery, where Peter had knowledge. Peter had no choice but to fall on his knees and say, not just master anymore, but to call him Lord. And he made a strange request. He fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You tell me, what does Peter want Jesus to do because of this catch? Leave. Why? Because in spite of everything that Peter had seen about Jesus to this point, never before in his life, not with the preaching, not with the healing, not with the casting out of demons. He had not yet realized just how utterly different, completely powerful, utterly, absolutely holy Jesus is, and it overcomes him. And he says this, Lord, I'm a sinful person. Surely you don't want to be around the likes of me. I think one of the, when we deal with Jesus and we see him do these new things in a new way, there's a temptation to say to yourself, if he knew who I am, if he, knowing Jesus, Jesus knowing who I really am could never use the likes of me. Not good enough don't know enough, too much of a secret life, 
too fearful, too sinful, too many bad habits. You ever feel that way? See, that's a very common reaction. I think there's two ditches on the road to discipleship. See, Jesus really is the master and Lord. He's in charge of this whole scene. He's been adapting to the crowd as it crowds in, but make no mistake, he's never taken off guard. He never works on contingency plans. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And as he calls his disciples to him, I think there's a ditch on either side of the road as we follow after him that we can fall into. One is what Peter is experiencing right now, to say, Lord, I am a sinful man. It makes me so uncomfortable to think of how high and holy you are and how impressive and important what you do is. I'm not even comfortable being around you. I, I feel my weakness. I feel my sinfulness. I want you around, but I just I can't take how holy, how high, how different you really are. The ditch on the other side of the road is a is being overly familiar with Jesus. We have a saying in the U.S. I love sayings. Traveling, I'm always listening for what people's colloquial expressions are. An American saying, it's got some years on it, maybe you've heard it, says, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. If you've been following Jesus for a while, He can become so familiar that you can lose sight of what Peter saw here, which is complete awe of who this is, who has chosen to get in the boat with Him. I don't think it was ill-intended. I think it meant to show some loyalty, but there was a T-shirt a few years ago going around in Christian culture that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Did you see this? Now, I understand Jesus said in the Gospel of John that He wouldn't call us servants, He would call us friends, but make no mistake, He's not our homeboy. He's the Lord. He's the one who spoke everything into existence, who upholds creation itself by the power of His Word. He's the one for whom all things were made. Everything in creation points back to Him. But as you try to follow Jesus and call Him your master, you're going to be tempted to stumble into one of those two ditches, to be so overly familiar that you can come to a church service as you did this morning, and it's ho-hum, it's Jesus again. Gospel of Luke, I get it, yeah, He does all this stuff, okay, no big deal. That's not what Peter's showing you. Remember, these aren't mythological stories. This is written history by a doctor who is recording as faithfully as he can after interviews and research, he's trying to tell you what happened one afternoon on the lake of Gennesaret as a carpenter from Nazareth told professional fishermen, boys, let's do it backwards. I've taught. They've gone home. Go out in the deep and put your nets down. Master, you weren't here because you're a carpenter, but those of us who worked these waters, we worked all night. We didn't catch a thing. Here's the wisdom of Peter. But at your word, I'll do what you say. And the next moment, there is a crisis wondering whether the boats are even going to make it. The catch is so overwhelming. And what Peter has to show you is that when you are called by the Lord, you are called by God Himself. 
the one in absolute control over everything. So let's not be overly familiar on the one hand, but let's not miss what Jesus says next because this is a word to Peter and to all of his disciples. Look with me in Luke chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, nine, for all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, can you imagine what Jesus might have said next? Peter said, I'm a sinful man. Jesus could have said, you're exactly right and he would have been right. But that's not what he said. What did he say instead? Don't be afraid. And then he changes his whole life. Look, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Let me make this personal. Because we're followers of Jesus here at Crosspoint, that's who we are. We're a Christian community. We are a Christian church. Jesus is in charge. Make no mistake, I'm up front, but I'm not in charge. I have some leadership responsibilities and influence that you've entrusted to me, but I'm not in charge. Jesus is in charge. Thank you for ever calling me pastor. No one ever has, ever will, or ever should call me master or Lord. He's in charge. We're a body. In fact, the Bible says we are the body of Christ. And He's the head. We're all just members of it. And what keeps the body of Christ from exercising its full potential and working at the peak of its capacity and doing exactly what the head is telling it to do is if we're honest and humble, we look at ourselves and we say to Jesus, there's no way you can use me. I know that's true because one of the primary challenges this church and every church I've ever been involved in, whether as a member, I started here as a college student, wherever I've been, either as a congregant, a member, or a church leader in some capacity as a volunteer or now a vocational pastor, churches are filled with people who follow Jesus and love Him, who when they are called by Him and see what He can do, say to Jesus in a lot of different ways, never, maybe never consciously and never with their own words, never verbally say, Lord, I, I just can't. Every year, for instance, we invite people from the church to become deacons. And the best and godliest men among them every year have private conversations with me saying, I'm not sure I'm up to this. One of the ditches in the road is to see yourself in the light of the holiness of Jesus and see your own sinfulness and say, Lord, rather than join you, I'd rather you leave because I'm so freaked out by the difference between the two of us. Here, Jesus saying to the disciples he would go on to die for and come back from the dead to give life to, don't be afraid. I'm doing something new and surprising. I'm reorienting your whole life. You've worked this lake for generations. Now you're going to join me on mission, and instead you're going to be catching people. See, because at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is the only one doing the preaching. You keep reading, and you're going to see commercial fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots and revolutionaries start preaching as Jesus sent them out. 
What's this all mean? It means, folks, that Jesus is always working to draw you close. Every single thing that Jesus does in the life of one of his disciples is meant to draw you close. That's always the point. The blessings, the seasons of blessing and prosperity, the good times, that's all meant to draw you close, to make you recognize that the good things that have been lavished in your life are from his hand, to recognize that and to say to him, Lord, thank you. The season that some of you are in of testing and trial and fear, whether that's in your health or your job or broken relationships, wherever you feel the pain of life, Jesus is always working on the same thing. He wants you to come close. If you're frightened and overwhelmed like a little child who's running hard, falls down and skins himself from the tip of his nose to both knees, he wants you to draw close for comfort and peace. He's always working to draw you close to show you exactly who he is in this new arena. If Jesus ever leads you into unfamiliar waters, into a new season of life, if he shows up in something where you haven't seen him work yet, and life is always moving and life is always changing and always throwing us difficulties, I can guarantee you that what Jesus is always working on is to draw you close. And along the way, what he wants to do is make you the person he wants you to be. That's why Peter called him Lord. See, in the United States, we are so fiercely individualistic. We really are. In human history, there's never been a culture as individualistic as we are. And that poses a big challenge. That's our own little cultural prison of disobedience when it comes to following Jesus because people who have fashioned a culture to make it life easy for themselves individually have a very hard time responding to the commands and instructions and invitations of someone else. It's hard for, someone else to, for us to let someone else run the show. I feel this tension in my own life all the time. Daily. In seasons of blessing, when things are going well, my inward impulse is to say, thanks, Lord, you must be tired of driving. I'll take it for a little while. You ever do that? And my natural in inclination is to be independent, to be individualistic. Jesus has his work cut out with 21st century American disciples because he's not working on a project of making you the best that you can be. He's working on a project to make you the person he wants you to be. There's a subtle difference, but it makes a, an eternity's worth of change. See, we're so individualistic that years ago the army had a campaign called an army of one. That's absurd. I'm just on the face of it, that can't possibly be true. Why did the marketing, the best marketing people our government could produce come up with an army of one? Because that resonates with American teenagers who are going to sign up. Oh, I can be all that I can be? I'll sign up for that. Then they go to boot camp and discover an entirely different world. <laughs> and there is such a thing in marketing as a bait and switch. They don't care what you think or how you feel. They have ideas for your life. Somebody has planned your life for you. They just didn't tell you so in the brochure. That's our culture. 
That's the Jesus is my homeboy mentality. I'm walking through my life. I'm going where I want to go. And along the way, I found this great friend named Jesus. He's my cheerleader. He's my coach. He's helping me be the person I want to be. Jesus is never working on making you who you want to be. He's always working to draw you close so that you can become the person He wants you to be. You know how often people who have learned this about Jesus have to pray for a crisis in the life of someone else that will bring them back to Jesus? You want to save yourself some pain? Look at Peter down on his knees, trembling. The commercial fisherman still soaked from the effort, saying, Lord, please leave. I'm a sinful man. And here Jesus look at him as he cowers there, saying, Peter, don't be afraid. This year we've spent together, it's all led up to this. From this day forward, you're not going to be living your dreams, your plans, feeding your family the way you always have. I have something new and better and different for you. From now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to be joining me in my work because the reason Jesus wants you close and he wants to change you into who he wants you to be is the whole point of that is having you join him in the good work he has planned for the two of you to do together. You say, I can't possibly do that. Yes, absolutely, you can. That's what Jesus is working on. And please don't misunderstand. You read that passage and you say, fisher of men, and you understand correctly that's a vocational call into ministry. Jesus didn't call hardly any of his disciples to do this. There were only 12 and then a larger group of 70. This is the turning point where Peter is going to do what he did, what he and his fellow partners did next. Look at verse 11. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That was their calling because that's what Jesus wanted for them. So you don't ever have to be on a church stage. You don't even have to be one of these students who I'm so grateful led us in worship scared as they might have been, because this is a daunting thing at any age. It's a daunting thing for me Sunday after Sunday. It's really daunting if you're an eighth grader, a tenth grader, still in high school. Your work for Jesus may never be public. You may never end up in a church brochure, but rest assured of this. If you're in the body of Christ, the head has good work for you to do. And what Jesus wants to do is pull you close change you from the inside out, and then have you join him. And heaven will tell you someday how listening to him and doing exactly what he said, how worthwhile, how beautiful, what an eternal difference that actually made. In the life of our church, I saw it on this men's retreat. We had a guy who's introverted and very service-oriented who gave his testimony and said, you know, I'm so much more comfortable behind the table checking the boxes and keeping track of the roster. And he gave this great testimony of what God had done in his life. And I thought to myself, here's the diversity of the body. If they put me behind the table checking the boxes and working the roster, half the men wouldn't have made it because I would have forgotten to t give them directions or, you know, I would have messed it up administratively somehow. The body together does everything that Jesus wants it to do. 
I mean, really personal and practical. Sometime early next year, we're not entirely sure when, we're going to start a third worship service. You couldn't tell it today with so many people gone, but last week was a record-setting attendance. We're just about out of space, not out of chairs, but we're just about out of space in every other facet of this ministry. Do you know how many people, how many disciples of Jesus it's going to take for us to make that third service what the Lord wants it to be? It's going to take every disciple to whom Jesus speaks. And you're going to walk in that path when He speaks to you and fall into the ditch of self-confidence to say, I've got my own plans. I want His help in my plans. Or of being so humble and so aware of His goodness and holiness that you disqualify yourself by saying, I could never. Here's the deal. Humility is your resume. At the very point where Peter said, Lord, we've walked through all these things, but I've never seen you work like this. It frightens me so much. I'd be more comfortable if you left. Exactly at that moment, Peter's, Jesus turned to Peter and said, don't be afraid. You're joining me from now on. And that frightened fisherman would go on in a moment of relying on his own strength to deny Jesus. And if you look at the Gospel of John, the first signal that John gives, that Jesus gives Peter, that he's calling him back, is another miraculous catch. He's going to make it go all full circle so that Peter will never put his eyes on himself again. He'll always keep them on Jesus. So listen, I have no idea what your next step might be. But I know this, whatever season you're in, whether it's a good one or a bad one, Jesus wants you close. You may be painfully aware of your sin, your weakness, your shortcomings, your past, your fear for the future. It's exactly in that environment that Jesus wants to meet you and make you the person He wants you to be. And He wants every one of you, whether you're secret and nobody ever sees what you do, like the man who is faithfully behind that table, or Jesus has a public ministry for you that everyone notices, Jesus is calling all of His disciples to come close change to be more like Him, and join Him in the good work that He's doing. I couldn't be more excited for us. My sincere prayer is that you wouldn't take this as just another Sunday, that you'd look past the sermon and all that goes with it, these lights, this carpet, me standing on this step, and all the human factors in teaching someone a portion of Scripture that Jesus would grant you the grace to look past all those human things. It can be pretty distracting. And you would simply say to Jesus, I know you want me close. Here I am. I've been self-willed. I've been a little independent. I've been overly familiar. Or I've been self-accusing and self-loathing, and I didn't think you could possibly use the likes of me. Here I am. I'm close. Change me and tell me what to do next. At your word, I'll take that next step. And then you watch what Jesus does. When Jesus does that in the life of any individual, it's a miracle. When He does it in the life of a congregation, by doing that work simultaneously in hundreds of people, the effect is absolutely astonishing. So my invitation to you is to listen and to join Him. Can we pray right now, please? Let's look to the Lord. Hey, which ditch do you favor? Are you always telling Him that you can't because of what you lack or the way you've messed up? 
are the secrets that only He knows about? That's your expression. That's your version of saying, Jesus, please go away. I'm sinful. Don't do any more. I'm sinful. You couldn't possibly like to be around me. He does. He wants you close. That's why He went to the cross. He wants you close. Could I just invite you, whichever ditch you're in, to say, Lord, I'm, I'm here. Best I know how. I'm humble right now. I just want you to speak, and I promise to listen and take you at your word. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, this is, again, week after week, I make this simple invitation. Would you acknowledge what Peter did in that boat? You're sinful and in need of a Savior. Would you turn to Him right now and say, Lord, I get it. I'm sorry. Please save me. If you do, just let us know on that card before you leave. There's, there's literally no telling what your life will be like three months, six months, a year from now if you'll simply take Him at His word, take your eyes off yourself and your past and your fears of the future and say, Lord, next step, you're in charge. I'll take the next step because you're in charge. If you do it and you tell me about it, I guarantee you three, six months from now, we'll be laughing about it. All He did, how He changed you, how He surprised you, this is what He does. He's speaking this into the life of every disciple all over the world. That's how big He is. That's how powerful. He can do this simultaneously for everyone who dares to follow Him. So just tell Him. Take a moment. I'll stop talking. Take a moment and tell Him about it. Lord, call disciples closer to Yourself right now. Please. Help us not to go on the mental map of the past for what You want us to do next. Help us to hear Your voice again afresh in our own individual lives. If You're speaking as You speak to hundreds of individuals, You'll also say the same thing to this collected body, this church. Help us to listen. Help us obey. Help us to change. Help us to join You in Your good work. I pray this in Jesus' name.